In October 2000, Dr. Matthew Lequia was an African Christian doctor working at St. Mary's Hospital in Lacorn, northern Uganda. He offered his body as a living sacrifice to God, a life devoted to serving his people. And in the end, it cost him his life. He'd grown up poor, but he'd won a series of scholarships, went to uni and graduated a doctor. He started work as an intern at St Mary's Hospital in 1983. When he left to do postgraduate work in England in 1990, most assumed he wouldn't come back, just like tens of thousands of African professionals each year who leave and never return. But he went straight back to Uganda, straight back to St Mary's Hospital. Uh, it was a poor region, neglected by the government. He bore a heavy load uh, as a professional. Uh, his family, his clan, his tribe all looked to him to provide income, uh, use his influence and even provide food. His wife usually cooked for around 20 people at each meal. In October 2000, he was in the major city of Kampala doing more postgraduate study. On October 7 of 2000, he received a call from a doctor at St Mary's. There's a strange disease killing our student nurses. Doctors had never seen anything like it before. The usual antibiotics weren't effective. Uh, a victim began bleeding from the mouth just before they died. We need you, the doctor pleaded. And so do uh, Dr Matthew left straight away. He arrived at St Mary's just in time to witness the death of another young nursing student. He suspected a newly identified deadly virus called Ebola. A blood test later confirmed it. A week later, there were 60 suspected cases at St Mary's. And despite the precautions that Dr Matthew put in place, more health workers got sick and 12 died. And with each death, fear grew. Nurses became more and more reluctant to come to work, but Dr Matthew led by example. He was in the Ebola ward each morning at 7am, finishing up around 8 at night. Uh, yet by early December, despite all precautions, he became sick too. A nurse overheard him praying one night in uh, the isolation ward, Oh God, I think I will die in your service. If I die, let me be the last. And then he sang, Onward Christian Soldiers. His condition quick, quickly worsened and uh, he died at 1.20am on December the 5th, uh, a couple of months after he'd first come back. Uh, he was a man who had offered himself to God as a living sacrifice uh, in the service of his people and ultimately, ultimately it cost him his life. Uh, Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, is this the sort of sacrifice God requires? Or is that unrealistic? Perhaps you're thinking, surely doesn't, God doesn't expect that sort of living sacrifice. Surely that's too extreme. Surely he's just after a good sort of life. One that's not too costly or painful. To give your life, that's simply too huge a gesture, isn't it? Well, I reckon it all depends on what you're responding to. The response needs to be in proportion to the action that you're responding to. And so a huge gift deserves a huge response. So notice what Paul is urging us to respond to. 
Firstly, he begins with, therefore. Therefore, offer your bodies. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, look at the previous verse, 11 verse 36. No one can measure up to God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belongs the glory forever. God deserves everything that we can give him. He is the most worthy being ever. Everything comes from him. He is the centre of everything. He deserves the glory and no one else forever. Therefore, 12.1 goes on. Now, the second clue about what we are responding to is the next part of that verse, 12.1. We are urged in view of God's mercies. Or some translations have, because of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So it's not only who God is we're responding to, but it's what he's done. And what's that? Well, Paul's just spent 11 chapters telling us what the mercies of God are. Back in chapter 1, despite our utter sinfulness, chapters 1 to 3, chapters, uh, chapter 3, 21 to 25, God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice to justify us and then he joins us to Jesus through faith. And then Romans 5 and 6, he pours out his spirit on us to give us life and joy and power over sin. And then Romans 8, he makes us his children and he promises us an eternal inheritance. Those are the mercies of God that we respond to. And so if we think of it like that, then even Dr Matthew's life becomes a pretty small token of appreciation for that sort of gift. In view of God's mercies, that's what we respond to. So notice we've come to a major turning point in, Romans, in the book of Romans. This is a new section. We've had 11 chapters of God's mercies, but now from chapter 12 on we see our response to God's mercies, the living sacrifice that we offer. Uh, Firstly, verses 1 and 2, we see it in relation to God. Uh, Then verses 3 to 8, we see it in relation to ourselves, how that works itself out in ourselves. And then verses 9 to 16, we see it related uh, uh, in relation to others, how that sacrifice works, works itself out in relationships. So firstly, how do we treat God in response to his mercies? Well, not surprising to either the Jews or Gentiles, he uses the language of the temple and he speaks of offering sacrifices. But Paul is not interested in lumps of meat. You don't get God on your side by offering a dead animal. God is far more important than that sort of gift. God is interested in you offering your own body and offering it as a living sacrifice. And just like a temple sacrifice, though, it is to be holy and pleasing. But it's not an animal that's been killed and burned in the correct way, but it's a holy and pleasing life. A life that's dedicated and approved by God. A body that's a living sacrifice. A body means every part of your life, all of the time. That's what's an act of spiritual worship. This gives us a definition of worship. You see, worship is not only the singing part of church. 
In fact, worship is more than just the worship service, what we are doing here. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, in its chapter on religious worship, uh, religious worship and the Sabbath day, begins in this way. There is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good to all, and is therefore, do you notice that's what God is, now what's our response to God? And is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all our heart, and with all our soul, and with all the mind. That's worship in view of God's mercies. That's how the chapter begins. It then goes on to focus on the specifics of what we do when we gather on a Sunday. Worship is your response to God's mercies in all of your life, including Sundays. It's more than the songs you sing with your mouth. It's the actions of your hands, the thoughts of your mind, the desires of your heart. Now, just a word on translation. Uh, We read out the word spiritual worship. Some Bible versions, uh, there's all sorts of different translations for that word spiritual. Rational, reasonable worship. Now that sort of aspect of what the word can mean, it it covers the idea of uh, an appropriate or proportionate response to what God's done. How our response, our worship should measure up to the mercies. Great mercies deserve a great response. Jesus gave his life for us. He deserves our life for him. Jesus deserves more than set times and set places. Worship is not clocking off work and then starting worship. Worship is a 24 hours a day, seven days a week, open all hours, life sacrifice. And so God is interested in something, uh, sorry, God isn't interested in something outside your normal life. It means that there is no such division in your life as the spiritual part of your life that God is interested in and your normal life that he's not interested in. That's not the way it works. Your living sacrifices is to be your normal life. It's to be everything. Your living sacrifice is to be your messy, complicated life. It's about hard work where there's a struggle for priorities and time management. Your spiritual worship is to be the way you respond to traffic jams and sick kids and arguments and disappointments and leaking toilets and sore backs. God is interested in it all. In your hands and feet, your mouth, your eyes, your wallet, your holidays, your family, your friends, your career, your influence, your reputation, your ambitions. But notice it's worship when it's done in view of God's mercies, which means if your life is not lived in response to God's goodness, if that's not your motivation, if it's lived for the sake instead of your reputation, or for profit, or for career advancement, or for pride, then it's not spiritual worship. 
no matter how sacrificial and noble your life appears, how much better you are living than your neighbour, it's not worship, because motive matters. But the flip side of that is, as long as you are saying thanks to God in what you do or say or think, then almost anything can be service to God. Almost anything can be spiritual worship. He's not simply interested in what you are doing right now. Setting up chairs, mowing lawns, washing dishes, delivering papers, changing nappies, if it's done in view of God's mercies, then it's true spiritual worship that's pleasing to God. And the things that you don't do, they can be a pleasing sacrifice as well. When you hold your tongue when you've been insulted, when you walk walk away from gossip, when you say no to temptation, when you change the channel, when you look the other way, when you refuse to take revenge, when you endure suffering with patience, when you do those things in view of God's mercies, they're acts of spiritual worship. Well, that's verse 1. Only 15 to go. We've taken half of our time, but that's all right. We are going to move much more quickly. Verse 1 is the key. It's, it's the hinge, isn't it, that unlocks chapters 12 to 15 after we move from verses one to, uh, chapters 1 to 11. So God is calling for a big response. Where do you begin on something like that? Well, verse 2 says, begin, begin with your mind. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You see, offering your body begins with renewing your mind. The way you think about yourself and God shapes the way you act. Your thinking is worked out in your actions. So look, for example, at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God's given you. Begin with an accurate opinion of yourself. Don't be proud that you're further along the road in some things than other people because you'll be behind them in other things. Now Paul gives us a hint about how we're to do that. He says it's according to the measure of faith that God's given you. Now that word for measure, as well as meaning amount, it can also mean measuring stick uh, or rule. And I think Paul is saying something like, measure yourself against the measuring stick of faith that God has apportioned to you. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think from the verses that follow, faith is shorthand for the faith that comes with the gifts that you've been given. You've been apportioned gifts, you've been apportioned faith to go with it. And as Paul goes on to say, each person has gifts and faith to use those gifts. You are not special because you have this much faith and gifts and uh, someone else has a different amount. So I think what Paul's saying in verse 3 is measure yourself by remembering that your gifts and your faith are what God has chosen to give you. Keep it in that perspective. 
That's how to make a judgement about the sort of person you are. You are someone who's been gifted by God. There's nothing to boast about in a gift. And you are simply one part. You've been apportioned some. Others have been apportioned different amounts. That's what the body is. There's nothing more special about you. Everyone plays a part. And you are needed just as much as you need others. Think of yourself with sober judgement. And the way those different parts of the body interact, verses 6 to 8, goes on to describe how uh, it's by using gifts. Gifts are for the purpose of others. Gifts are not for you and your pride or your comparison. Gifts are to build up others and all to be done in thanks to God. Look at verses 6 to 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. First thing to notice, all the gifts are from God. These are not things that you work up out of your own uh, insides. There's nothing to boast about. Secondly, each of us has been given different gifts. No one has your particular combination of gifts. And God has spread them out so that they complement each other. Every task is covered. The body is effective and healthy. Uh, Third thing uh, to notice, if God has divided up the gifts, then that means you have a responsibility to play your role. You are only a true part of a body if you are contributing. Sitting back and expecting others to contribute means that all of us miss out. That's what Paul's point is in verses 7 uh, 7 and 8. Play your part. If your gift is prophecy, prophesy. In some ways it's a funny thing to say, but in others it's not. It's saying, if you have a gift, use it. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, encourage. Play your part. Do your bit. Don't neglect what you have. Don't give up offering hospitality just because no one returns the favour. Don't stop doing your particular ministry so that everyone will notice when things fall apart. That's not a reason to stop. The whole body is built up as you use your gifts. And that means you, you are built up as you use your gifts. You miss out when you don't use your gifts. Verses 7 8 describes speaking gifts, but it doesn't stop there. There are all sorts of actions uh, that are worked out in God's people as well. It's the way you serve that counts. Attitude matters. He goes on, if it's contributing to the needs of others, do it generously. Give generously as opposed to grudgingly. As opposed to looking over your shoulder to see who's noticing you giving. Or because you'll get a plaque in your honour. Or because you'll get a tax deduction. If your gift is leading, then do it diligently. Not in a way that's lazy. Don't take it easy simply because no one checks up on you. If your gift is showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. Don't be a martyr. 
Don't do it looking for a pat on the back. And don't do it because it makes you feel better about yourself. And don't do this thing because you're covering up for this area of your life that you can't solve or because you feel inadequate in. And this one at least makes you feel good about yourself. That's not a reason to be showing mercy. Do it cheerfully. Think of yourself with sober judgement. You are simply a part. Play your part. Well, from verse 9, Paul widens his view. He moves from an individual response to the way the whole group of God's people are to act. And he begins with the key. He begins with the crucial ingredient, uh, like oats for porridge, like flour for a cake. Verse 9, love is the key. It doesn't matter how many gifts everyone has, uh, they are nothing. They are pointless and empty and powerless unless they are performed with love. And so verse 9, love must be sincere, genuine, not phony or fake, not a mask. It's the word for love, agape, that New Testament writers grabbed and took over to describe God's love. Selfless service that puts others before self uh, love which is an act of the will rather than flowing from a feeling. It was quite an uncommon word in uh, ancient Greek writing of, around the time until the New Testament writers grabbed it and used it. Uh, but it's agape love that God loved the whole world with when he sent his only son in John 3.16. It's agape love in John 5, 8 that God loved us with while we were still sinners. Romans eight thirty nine says it's God's agape love that nothing can separate us from. Now that's the same love that we are to have for one another. That's the love that is to be genuine. At the same time we're told God's people are to hate evil. We're to be wary of it. We're to keep our social distance from evil. Which is not contradictory to loving in a genuine way because evil destroys people. So to hate its effect on people is actually an expression of our love. We're not to hate evil people. Verse 14 says we're to bless those who persecute us. We're to hate the evil that affects or corrupts or pollutes them. Verse 10 describes the nature of this love. Our love for one another is to be affectionate and devoted, and the word is used, uh, translated brotherly love. Uh, agape, uh, the, the word describes a decision, it's a, it's a choice. Uh, this word for brotherly love, Philadelphia, it emphasises the feeling, it emphasises the genuine warmth. Uh, this is family. Uh, we are committed. We feel something for one another. We are brothers and sisters. Uh, wouldn't it be great for a church to show Philadelphia brotherly love? It would offer a wonderful cure for those of us who are lonely, single or married. Philadelphia is genuine. It enjoys people rather than simply puts up with them. Paul goes on, honour others before yourself. Encourage, compliment. It's free. It's 
free to give a compliment, but it's very valuable, isn't it? Put others first. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Treat as valuable those the world says is not valuable. The rejects. Verse 11. Love stays enthusiastic. Love sticks at a job. It doesn't run out of steam. Because other people are being served in what you're doing. And because you're doing it because you love the Lord. Verse 12, as you hope for better times tomorrow, as you hope for the future, rejoice because you know that God is good and reliable and he will bring it to pass. And as you suffer, do it patiently for the same reason. God is reliable and good. And thirdly, as you pray, do it faithfully. Once again, because God is reliable and good. continues, verse 13, love contributes to the needs of others. Love goes looking for strangers that hospitality can be shown to. Verse 14, love blesses rather than curses. Verse 15, love rejoices when people rejoice. It cheers. And when people mourn, instead of trying to cheer them up, love has a good cry as well. Because their pain is your pain. You feel it. Uh, That's much more encouraging than trying to cheer someone up. In verse 16, love bends over backwards to live in harmony with people, to come to agreement. Love doesn't presume that it knows better than someone else or deserves better than someone else. Love bends over backwards to live in harmony And one more attitude to have, don't be proud. Once more, it's about getting your mind right, about thinking about yourself accurately. And if you do that, you will see the value in others, the significance of others. You'll be happy to associate with people of low position, with those the world rejects. Now, all of that is our spiritual, our reasonable worship. That's what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices in response to God's mercies. Now that was the sort of love that Dr Matthew showed to his people. A life given that others might live. Remember his prayer, if I die, let me be the last. Well in a way God answered his prayer. Many many more died across Africa through Ebola but among the healthcare workers who fought Ebola at St Mary's, he was the last. Now, as we compare ourselves and the life that we've lived so far to someone like Dr Matthew, we might think we can never measure up to that. And we can certainly never measure up to the love that God has shown to us in Jesus. But he does call us to love like that. He calls us to love because he first loved us to love in response to his love. 1 John 4 says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. It's not a difficult message to understand, but it is a, a difficult one to hear, a difficult one to put into practice. Uh, we need to know more of the mercies that you have lavished on us. Uh, we need to know more of uh, a renewed mind that we might think accurately about ourselves and our world and about you. And we pray that you would transform our minds and then that you would transform our attitudes, our hearts and our actions, uh, that we might offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, and that in all of this you would receive the honour and the glory. Amen.